Shelley Schlender. This is an extended interview with Dr. Ron Rosedale about leptin, IL-6, and inflammatory conditions that include the kind of cytokine storm that can happen with COVID-19. We'll include a full transcript on the How on Earth Radio website. One thing to keep in mind, this is an interview to help you ask questions about the science behind your health choices. This is not an interview to take the place of medical advice. Talk with a doctor you trust if you have questions about your health, and especially if you're taking medications. Now here's Dr. Ron Rosedale. Can you hear me well? I can hear you pretty well, and I'm using the high-tech method of recording this phone call on my handheld Zoom recorder as you speak on WhatsApp from India. I am in India. I'm actually helping a family known as the Ambani family, probably the most prominent, not even probably, they are the most prominent family in India with their health. They're mostly located in Mumbai, but ended up getting locked down in a town called Jamnagar. So that's where I am, in a town a little bit north of Mumbai called Jamnagar. We've certainly been thinking about India from here in the United States because there's so much concern that India's population and density mean it's in great danger from what will happen with coronavirus. On the other hand, there's also a thought that perhaps India and Pakistan, because they do tuberculosis vaccines, might have an unusual amount of protection. Yeah, not just tuberculosis, but malaria. You know, malaria is fairly rampant. So many people have taken quinolones, chloroquine, things like that, which is being touted as a medication to help treat the coronavirus. Uh, so that's you know, one way of looking at it. However, the most important thing to fight any infection, especially viruses, is going to be a strong immune system. And that's really the only way epidemics subside. It's not that the bug goes away, but that people become immune to it. And that's especially true for viruses. And the problem here in India is that many people have deficiencies that impair their immune system. For instance, whereas in the U.S., People eat too much protein, which also impairs the immune system, actually, because excess protein is made into sugar, and that raises insulin, and it causes what's called glycation, when sugar molecules combine with other proteins and other molecules that impairs their function. And antibodies for the immune system are all proteins. You know, protein is very necessary for the immune system. So in the U.S., they eat too much protein, but in India, they eat too little in general, and they don't have enough protein to actually you know, mount a strong immune system to make antibodies. And so one of the problems with India is the deficiency of protein in general. And then there's also some micronutrients that are deficient in general in India, such as B12, found more in, in animal products. Many people here are vegetarians. Vitamin D, which people are surprised to hear, even in India, but due to the dark skin and people here are very modest, so they cover up when they're out in public, you know, so they're not exposed to the sun very often. And often it's really kind of too hot to be outside. And so there's a gross deficiency in vitamin D here, and D is very important also for the immune system. And and despite having thousands of miles of shoreline, ocean surrounding India, and also because of vegetarianism, they don't eat very much fish, and so they're deficient in omega-3 fatty acids, also, uh, which is required to make any new cell, and cholesterol, required to make new cells. So uh, cholesterol is actually a big friend, and they've shown that you know, a deficiency of cholesterol also impairs the immune system. Which also includes taking cholesterol-lowering drugs, oddly enough, not really oddly enough, but I guess paradoxically, if you want to call it that. So um, there's 
quite a few immune deficiencies in India. Also, from a societal level, people in India really love to congregate. I mean, they're very, very sociable people. They really crowd together. They love being with one another, which is really nice, but not so much when there's an epidemic going on. And so I'm not, in general, in favor of lockdowns. In India, it's a bit of a different story. Because if they didn't have a lockdown, then the first thing people would do is get together in large groups. You know, it's kind of good and bad. Lockdown keeps people indoors, which impairs vitamin D even more. No, no sunlight. But from an ideal circumstance, what you want, as we were mentioning, to fight any virus is to become immune to it. So rather than hide from it, ultimately, we have to be exposed. You don't become immune to something unless you are exposed. That's the whole idea of vaccines, for instance, is that it exposes you to the virus or bacteria that then allows your immune system to uh, build up antibodies to it so that you can fight it. Ultimately, that is what has to occur. The virus itself doesn't go anywhere. It's going to continue to be transmitted. Every breath people take at this very moment, they're breathing in some coronavirus. It's not the COVID-19 that people are talking about, but you know, cold viruses, influenza viruses, they're everywhere. And the reason everybody doesn't get sick and die from breathing these viruses is because they've built an immunity to it. And what is troublesome about the COVID-19 virus that is affecting people around the world right now is that it's novel. And so there is no past immunity to it. Our bodies don't yet know how to fight this particular virus. With all of the yeah. lockdowns, we're buying some time so that we can see if there's some way that we can medically intervene, either through a vaccine or have better testing so that we at least know who has had this virus and who is at most risk for it and what the general pattern is for how somebody gets sick. There are so many unknowns that we're buying at least a little time with the lockdown, is my understanding. Does that fit with what you're thinking, too? Partially. I think that the main benefit of the lockdown is not that we really don't know who's exposed or getting tested. I think all of that is really not worthwhile. Everybody's going to eventually test positive to it, or most people, the vast majority of people will ultimately test positive to it. And the vast majority of people who test positive will have no symptoms because they have a strong immune system. There are certain predispositions, however, that we do know. That has to do with diabetes, for instance. We know that the vast majority of people who do have a hard time with this virus, have respiratory difficulties, have pre-existing conditions, one of the prime ones being diabetes, hypertension, previous respiratory difficulty, cardiovascular disease. And I'll tell you why in a moment, or at least I'll tell you why I think that's so uh, in a little bit. But the major reason that a lockdown is beneficial is really not to help people as much. But because this virus is so novel, many people will get sick because nobody has had the opportunity to build immunity to it, that it overwhelms the medical system. And so if so many people are getting it all at the same time, there will be a fraction of those people who will get quite ill that require hospitalization. Essentially, hospitals and doctors can't handle the onslaught of such a novel virus. And so so many people reporting to the hospital being sick, many people need ventilators. And if everybody were to and get the infection at the same time, that proportion of people who would get seriously ill wouldn't be able to get the medical care that they need. And so that's the benefit of lockdown is to try and spread out the frequency of infection so it doesn't all happen at the same time. It's really more for the hospitals and the doctors than actually the people <laughs> um, is really how it turns out. Trying to hide from this virus is probably futile. As I say, the virus isn't going anywhere. At some point, people have to go outside and breathe. And we know now 
Well, in fact, it should have been known before. It surprised me that the World Health Organization expressed surprise, you know, when recently it was found that the virus is in aerosol particles. When people breathe, it stays in the air for days. I don't know why that was such a surprise, because that's what happens with every virus, not even just viruses, but any tiny particle like pollen. That's how people get allergies as they breathe in ragweed pollen because it's floating in the air because they're tiny particles and that happens with all tiny particles so one can expect the covid virus to be in the air and it's going to stay in the air and finally when people go outside they're going to breathe it and all you can hope for it's more than hope because people generally do build an immunity to it and they're finding now that the vast majority of people who test positive if they were to test the general population and not just sick people they'll find that the vast majority of people who do test positive have no symptoms at all their immune system is up to the task it fights the virus and people don't even know that they've been exposed they might feel a little bit under the weather for a little while but it won't be as serious as what we're hearing about so much in the news and if we get an antibody test, if an antibody test becomes available, maybe people would even know if they've been exposed and they might be at less risk for both contaminating other people and also for getting as bad a case of it sometime in the future. Still unknowns about whether those two possibilities are there, but they're more likely if someone could get an antibody test. Sure, that would be really helpful because then they don't have to be scared anymore. They can go out dancing in the street. The ideal situation is if people were to get almost like little microdoses of the virus so that they do build up an immunity, because that's the only way that they'll ever survive it. As I say, almost everybody is going to be exposed at some point. The real competition is really between building the immune system versus the immune system getting overwhelmed by the virus. And so if we can be exposed to small doses... That's a good thing. In India, it's a little bit different because people just tend to congregate together. And so a lockdown in India is probably the only way to slow down the spread of the virus with so many people and medical system that just cannot handle so many people being sick at the same time. But other than that, it's probably better to be outdoors because then the virus will just kind of dissipate into the atmosphere when people do breathe, they will breathe a small dose of it, and they will be able to build up an immune system. Uh, some people will get, like you say, they'll get a little bit sick. Many people won't get sick at all. They won't even know they have it. Some people will get a few symptoms. That's probably the majority of people get a few symptoms. And then there's a small percentage of people that will get seriously ill, generally because they have other conditions that impair their immune system or increase inflammation to a great extent. And I will tell you what the major pre-existing condition is and what people can actually do about it. One of the major problems that ends up really killing people and then really, really presenting with the respiratory difficulty is a massive inflammation. You know, people have heard of inflammation where they get swelling due to infection or other things, any injury. Uh, inflammation is there to save your life. That massive inflammation that you're mentioning, people are starting to hear more about that Ron Rosedale, through the term cytokine storm, and it's being described as something that does not happen at the beginning of having a COVID-19 infection. For somebody who has this situation, it's more when they've had it for a while, they've had some aches, they've had some other symptoms, and then a little later, it's as though the body goes into another phase of reaction where suddenly the lungs are basically fighting themselves and the term cytokine storm is used quite often to describe this very sudden change where some people are short of breath, 
Other people, they're not short of breath, but their oxygen levels go very far down. Whatever symptoms they have at that point, it can mean it's a very life-threatening situation that has to be dealt with very quickly or it's going to go south. Right. That's when people need ventilation, when they can't you know, take in enough oxygen themselves and they need to be hospitalized on ventilators. You're exactly correct when you talk about the term cytokine storm. Here's what I think ties it all together that I have not read about anywhere. Uh, if I can mention it, maybe people can start researching it. We know that diabetics are very much at risk. People with hypertension are very much at risk. Obesity, obese people are far more at risk. And then there's the, the cytokine storm that you mentioned. Well, there's a hormone called leptin. And leptin itself is a cytokine. I'm sorry, that didn't quite come through on the WhatsApp application. You said leptin itself is a cytokine. What is a cytokine? A cytokine is a hormone, essentially, that acts very locally. They're very powerful. Most of the cytokines are inflammatory. We hear of hormones such as thyroid and insulin and estrogen and things like that. The body has hundreds, maybe even thousands of other lesser-known hormones that don't necessarily circulate 100% 100% in the bloodstream, but work more locally. And cytokines are sort of like that, although leptin does circulate in general. And although it is a cytokine itself, so we know that if you have high levels of leptin, it also causes inflammation. But its major problem is that it elicits the manufacture and the release of other cytokines, one being IL-6. And we know that the major cytokine storm that is occurring with COVID is mediated by IL-6. IL-6, that is interleukin-6. That's an inflammatory hormone that the body makes. Yes, and it's very, very inflammatory. And one of the treatments, in fact, one of the major treatments, main treatments for people with the cytokine storm is to give IL-6 inhibitors, which are given to, for instance, people with bad autoimmune arthritis, for instance, rheumatoid arthritis, which have you know, excess inflammation, so they give IL-6 inhibitors. So the drug already exists and is being used to treat the cytokine storm because they know that IL-6 plays a huge role in it. And I happen to know the strong connection between leptin and IL-6. Well, we know that when people are hyper, when, when people have too much leptin, they're hyperleptinemic, they're leptin-resistant. It's the major cause of obesity. It's one of the major causes of diabetes, one of the major causes of hypertension. So all of the predisposing factors that we know exist that put somebody at risk of an adverse outcome with COVID-19 are tied together by excess leptin. It mediates hypertension and autonomic system dysfunction. So a lot of these people, as you mentioned, have a difficult time breathing, not just because air doesn't get in, but there's a kind of a central way that people's almost, I wouldn't say desire because they want to breathe, but they can't. And not just because of obstruction, but because there's an impairment in their ability to take a breath. And that's elicited centrally in the brain and the hypothalamus and... Once again, leptin largely controls the hypothalamus and autonomic dysfunction and the sympathetic nervous system, uh, vasoconstriction, hypertension, all these things, everything that puts a person at risk for serious disease with COVID has at least partially, if not mostly, uh, to do with leptin. And so you want to bring down leptin, and it's relatively easy. 
you can bring down leptin not totally down to where it should be because some of that is mediated by how fat a person is. But what's not appreciated is that there's a surge in leptin, a spike in leptin, depending on what a person eats. So if a person eats a high-carbohydrate meal, for instance, it causes a leptin that day to perhaps double from what it would be if a person hadn't eaten. And so we know that if a person fasts, for instance, or if a person follows a low-carbohydrate, moderate-protein, high-fat diet that I've been recommending for 25 years, that leptin levels will really fall. It can probably go to maybe half of what it was prior to having eaten a you know a poor high-carbohydrate meal. When you lower leptin, I think you can greatly reduce the incidence of inflammation, excess inflammation, cytokine storm, hypertension, all the, the factors that make surviving this virus far more of a challenge. But this is not recognized. And so people go into hospitals and they get glucose and everything that occurs, everything that they eat inside the hospital, all the IVs that they take uh, will raise leptin and make surviving this virus uh, far more of a challenge. And so they take medications to reduce inflammation they need to eat also to reduce inflammation and to reduce leptin and reduce the IL-6 that's causing the inflammation in the first place. Well, Ron so, Rosedale, you've been giving a lot of information for people to check out about things like leptin, about the role between hypertension, high blood pressure, and high leptin levels, and how somebody eats can start to affect the levels of hormones such as leptin. How someone sleeps also affects their leptin levels. If someone doesn't get enough sure. sleep, their leptin levels tend to be higher than if they're getting uh, an adequate amount of sleep. So there's some other things that can affect leptin. Some questions about that regarding leptin are, what if somebody has suddenly found out that they have symptoms like coronavirus 19? Is that too late to start this? Would that be more stressful to the body to shift to this than just sticking the normal course? There is a transitional period, and that's a great question. In other words, whenever the body um, kind of shifts gears, then there is somewhat of a stress put on it, but probably not near as much of a stress as, for instance, a high-carbohydrate meal would cause in raising leptin and raising insulin, and it raises it within hours. And when it raises insulin and raises leptin, we know that it almost immediately increases so-called sympathetic nervous system activity, basically the fight or flight stress. It's not a mental stress, but it's a physical stress. And you mentioned sleep. One of the major reasons, and probably the major reason why a lack of sleep raises leptin is because the lack of sleep causes an increase in the sympathetic nervous system to keep a person awake. In other words, it causes the secretion of adrenaline and noradrenaline from the adrenal glands to allow the person to stay awake when they ought to be sleeping. And that raises blood sugar. And then the raising of blood sugar raises insulin and raises leptin, which increases sympathetic nervous system activity, which also then secretes glucose, and you're into a vicious cycle. And we know, for instance, they did this to college students who will you know, pretty much do anything for, <laughs> for, for the meals. They kept college students up for several days straight. The vast majority of them actually clinically became diabetic. It was able to be reversed with sleep. But it just shows the power of lack of sleep in causing an increase in blood sugar. That increase in blood sugar is due to an overabundance of adrenal hormones, hormones of stress, such as adrenaline, cortisol, noradrenaline, things like that that raise blood sugar. A lot of that is also then mediated by leptin, and it also raises leptin. Again, as I mentioned, a vicious cycle also with insulin. Uh, throw that in there also. You know, Ron Rosedale, 
with as much as you're mentioning about things like stress adding to the situation, we should try to think of a joke to tell right now. But I, I'm a little short on jokes at the moment. The other side of what I'm wondering about with something like leptin is that many Americans are on many different kinds of medications for things like high blood pressure, for high cholesterol, for diabetes, such as insulin or insulin-lowering medications. When somebody starts to eat and sleep differently, then their need for those medications can start to change so that they can suddenly become over-medicated very quickly. If somebody is not used to eating this kind of diet, would it be best if they work with a medical doctor to help them adjust their medicines? An excellent question, and I'm really glad you brought that up because medicines do have to be adjusted because this is not something that takes days or weeks but can occur almost immediately, like within hours. So, yes, when people bring down their leptin and they bring down their insulin because of the change in diet, and again, that bringing down insulin and bringing down leptin can occur in one day, uh, leptin before insulin, actually. It generally does certainly lower fasting blood sugar. So if they're on diabetic medications, that has to be lowered. Many diabetics measure their own blood sugar, and so that's easy. When your blood sugars start falling, you take less medication. They can probably do that themselves. Great if they can do it under a doctor's supervision. Many doctors don't understand the power of diet in reducing insulin and leptin and therefore blood sugar. But great if it can be done under uh, a knowledgeable doctor's direction. The other thing, as you mentioned, is, is hypertension. Blood pressure, probably at least 75-80% of the time, will come down fairly rapidly when one drops insulin and leptin, not the least of which is because it reduces the sympathetic nervous system activity, which causes vasoconstriction, constriction of blood vessels and fluid retention, which causes an increase in blood pressure. And so by reducing insulin, which uh, allows the release of retained body fluid so like when people go on a diet they know well you're losing a lot of water weight yes you're urinating away retained fluid but you're also then dilating arteries so blood pressure can come down very rapidly and quite significantly that does also entail a reduction in their blood pressure medication and so i would encourage anybody who was on quite a few medications for blood pressure or for diabetes or anything like that to home monitor you know, get a blood pressure cuff, measure your own blood pressure. As your blood pressure comes down, you can start reducing your blood pressure medication because you can't wait for a doctor's appointment, especially at this time when there's so many lockdowns. People are going to have to start taking their own responsibility for their health. Many times they've been told not to, and so it's not people's fault. But everybody wants you know, your, your doctor to be in charge, and that would be great if they were available and if they actually knew about such things. But because many of the measurements can be done by people themselves at home with blood pressure cuffs, with glucose monitors, it's relatively easy to measure these things and then recognize that they will not be doing themselves harm and, in fact, doing themselves a lot of help if they can reduce the medications that they're on, many of which have adverse side effects. There does seem to be a strong correlation between people with underlying conditions and having a more serious case of COVID-19 when it does arrive. And yet I have to say, Ron Rosedale, what you're describing, even though it's much more well-known, this topic of a ketogenic diet or a low-carb, high-fat, adequate protein diet, or even just cutting out a lot of the junk food that people eat, that extra pint of ice cream in a time of crisis and worry. Yeah, and that's unfortunate. There's a lot of misinformation out there, especially when it pertains to 
you know, chronic diseases like heart disease and diabetes and obesity and autoimmune diseases. In fact, I would say that the vast majority of what people have heard about these things is absolutely wrong. We can see where it's leading to heart diseases on the rise, cancers on the rise. Lifespan now is going down for the first time in human history, as far as we know. If something obviously is not working, you don't have to be a genius to recognize that it kind of behooves a person to do something different. All of the science, the deeper science that has come out about diet and nutrition over the last 30-some years that I've been talking about this supports the notion that you need to keep insulin and leptin down so that a person becomes more insulin and leptin sensitive that then allows the burning of fat as opposed to sugar. Nutrition and health in general, and if I had to integrate literally tens of thousands of research articles that I've read, uh, it can boil down into a single sentence, and that is that a person's health and uh, longevity is going to be determined most by the proportion of fat versus sugar that they burn over a lifetime. You can essentially burn two fuels. You can burn fat or you can burn sugar, or you can burn products of burning fat, such as ketones. And uh, if you burn fat and ketones as your primary fuel most of the time, you're going to be quite healthy. Your incidence of diabetes and cancer and obesity, hypertension, autoimmune diseases, all of the so-called chronic diseases of aging, and even aging itself, are going to be much reduced. Whereas if you're burning sugar most of the time, it'll be the opposite. You're going to be much more disease prone. Sugar was never meant to be a primary fuel. The reason we have glucose in the blood is not to burn it on a continual basis, but as an emergency fuel because it can be burned without oxygen. So it's an anaerobic fuel. So if we have to run away from a lion or a tiger and we're sprinting and we can't breathe oxygen fast enough to be able to burn fat, then we have sugar because you can burn sugar without oxygen, whereas you need oxygen to burn fat. So it's a kind of a an emergency turbocharged fuel that is there for just that, emergencies, anaerobic emergencies. But because people constantly eat sugar, by sugar we're talking about also foods that turn into sugar, like all of the starches that people eat, bread, pasta, cereal, potatoes, rice. We call them different names. We even call it complex carbohydrate and think that it's good for you. But as soon as you chew it and swallow it and initially digest it, it all turns to glucose. It's your cells that actually do the eating. So we think of ourselves as putting food in our mouth, chewing it, and we're eating. But we're not. We're just processing the food, ultimately making little molecular pieces out of it so that we can feed our cells. Whether it starts out as rice, potato, cereal, and then we put it in our mouth and we chop it up into smaller pieces and swallow it and then we basically chemically cook it and we make it into even smaller little molecular pieces to feed our cells who actually do the eating what they're going to see is glucose it doesn't matter what our perception is when we put it in our mouth while it circulates as glucose it also raises insulin and raises leptin and our cells then become bombarded with insulin and leptin day in and day out almost 24 hours a day ultimately the signal the really critical life-giving signals of insulin and leptin become corrupted because they're overused it's like being in a smelly room too long pretty soon you can't smell it there's reasons for this and so people become insulin and leptin resistant and that produces even more insulin and leptin because the body wants to get those life-giving messages heard and so it produces more insulin and more leptin but the problem there is that there's an orchestration, whereas with insulin, we want your liver to essentially get a higher signal than your fat, but as you become insulin resistant, your liver becomes resistant first, and then it can't hear insulin's message, so it makes too much sugar. The diabetics wake up in the morning, haven't even eaten, and their sugar goes up, 
rather than down, and that's because the liver is made too much because it can't hear insulin because it's insulin resistant, and the orchestration of insulin becomes corrupted. And so the fine orchestration of signals in the body becomes impaired. That's what causes disease. When we have a time period with a new novel virus, such as coronavirus 19, that adds yet another way to make a lot of noise in the whole system. Well, absolutely. I mean, what something like the coronavirus will do is it will bring out deficiencies in our health. It becomes very apparent when a person's immune system is impaired, and a person's immune system will be impaired when they are leptin-resistant and when they have high levels of leptin, which occurs because of that resistance. Leptin itself, although better known to be a hormone that regulates fat metabolism and fat storage, and we know that leptin is elevated in almost all obese people, what's not appreciated is how important it is for the immune system. The white blood cells, which are critical to our immune system, now have leptin receptors. In other words, leptin signals white blood cells very extensively. And so when a person can't listen to leptin properly, their immune system is virtually automatically impaired, so they can't fight the infection as well. In addition to that, high levels of leptin predispose to this so-called cytokine storm because it makes too much IL-6 to begin with, and it itself is a cytokine and in itself is inflammatory. So when it's high, they're already too inflamed, and then the predisposition to manufacture and secrete IL-6, which causes even more inflammation, which also then raises blood sugar, and <laughs> so you get all, all these vicious cycles. So yes, what you want to do is you want to try and improve your health as much as you can. And your immune system is certainly going to be a huge part of that. And so as you improve your health in general, one of the main ways is by burning fat as your primary fuel as opposed to sugar. The only way that you can do that is by having leptin and insulin being signaled properly. Basically, what people have to look at eating is it has nothing to do with calories. You want to eat to regulate the hormone, such as insulin and leptin, that then tell your cells what to eat, i.e. sugar or fat. You don't just burn what you eat. You have to go through a whole complex symphony of metabolic orchestration that then tells your cells what they should be eating. And they're the ones that actually do the eating. And that is what your health depends on. So again, you eat to regulate insulin and leptin that then tells your cells whether they should burning fat or burning sugar, which then has a huge amount to do with inflammation in general and health in general and whether you're going to be able to fight off this COVID virus or not. You want your body to be able to fight this new virus, but you also want your body to not overfight it, not to fight it so much that it causes the cytokine storm, is what I hear you saying. You don't want a bunch of collateral damage, essentially, is what it amounts to. In other words, you don't want to just start flailing around with a sword and killing all the people around you. You want to specifically kill the COVID virus, not your own cells. And when the immune system is dysregulated, what you're getting is a whole bunch of collateral damage. Your own cells die. You're killing your own cells as opposed to the virus. Obviously, that will not lead to a very good outcome. So inflammation has to be controlled. We certainly need inflammation to be able to fight any kind of stress. You need inflammation to fight viruses and you fight bacteria. But again, it has to be controlled properly. To control it properly, insulin and leptin have to be controlled properly. To control insulin and leptin properly, you have to eat properly. Ron Rosedale, I've got a couple more questions for you. One is I'm thinking about friends and family who might be obese Leptin levels tend to be higher in somebody who is overweight or obese. Are you saying, though, that it doesn't take suddenly losing 20 pounds to create this protection? What makes this protection more likely is to get enough sleep and to eat in a way that doesn't push the body into lots of leptin and lots of insulin. 
Yeah, and this is something that is misunderstood by most doctors and even people who know about leptin. Most leptin, not all, most leptin is produced by fat itself. And so it's thought that the more fat you have, the higher your leptin. And the only way you bring down leptin is by losing weight. And of course, that is a many months long process. That's not true. Your leptin levels are determined by two factors, not just one, not just by how much fat you have. How much fat you have kind of sets kind of a baseline level. So if you are fat, you will have a higher baseline level. But that baseline level can dramatically rise depending on what a person eats for breakfast or lunch or dinner. And that can be controlled almost immediately. Change what you have for breakfast, lunch, or dinner, and you can cut your leptin levels almost in half in one day. And that's been shown for many years, but it seems still to be unknown to people that you can greatly bring down your leptin. But And when you bring down your leptin by preventing the big surges, the big spikes in leptin caused by what a person eats, then you increase leptin sensitivity, you reduce leptin resistance. And when you reduce leptin resistance, you're allowed to burn fat. Over a longer period of time, you start burning your fat, and then leptin goes down even further. And that takes a while. But it does not take a while to bring leptin down dramatically, very quickly, just by changing what you eat. When you mentioned that you know leptin tends to be higher in obese people, I would actually go um, a little bit more emphatically with that and say that leptin almost always is higher in overweight and obese people. It's very rare for an obese person not to have higher leptin. There are you know, very, very rare genetic mutations, probably less than one in a thousand. So the vast majority of people who are overweight and obese have high levels of leptin. They can bring those down within one day if they eat properly. They won't bring it down all the way. They won't bring it down as far as we'd like. That would entail some fat loss. But certainly by bringing down the spikes in leptin, you can improve dramatically very quickly. And then it also then allows you to burn fat so that over the long haul, you can bring it down even further as you lose your excess fat, especially your visceral fat, belly fat. And the belly fat, we know that produces a lot of these inflammatory chemicals such as IL-6 that causes overinflammation and predisposes to diseases such as diabetes and autoimmune diseases and the cytokine storm. There's three takeaway points from what you've said. One, whatever somebody's weight, if what you say is correct, this way to eat could have protection for people to help their body fight the coronavirus. And starting now is probably better than starting in the middle of finding out you have symptoms. And even though some doctors don't know about this way of approaching health and wellness, there's an increasing number of doctors that do. And additionally, for anybody that's on medication, if they can monitor what's happening with their body's response to the medicines and let their doctor know. It's always best under an educated doctor's supervision, right? Somebody that actually understands the changes that occur when a person changes to a diet like we've been recommending for decades but totally depends on the doctor there are some doctors that are very knowledgeable that would be great to listen to their advice and there's other doctors who know very little about this and whose advice actually might be more harmful than not one thing i would urge people is to take their health in their own hands also read a little bit about what leptin does read a little bit about the power of a low carbohydrate higher fat diet which is now being called a ketogenic diet which I don't agree with the name. It's not the ketones that are so beneficial, but the actual burning of fat. Don't be afraid, really, to adjust your own medications if your doctor is unable to do so. 
your doctor does not really know about the physiology, for instance, of insulin and leptin and what it will do to the blood sugars. Your blood sugars fall, you must reduce your blood sugar medication, reduce your diabetic medication. It's really quite simple. Start off slow, and if blood sugar stays high, reduce a little bit more. Same with blood pressure. Your blood pressure is going down, reduce your blood pressure medication. Don't be afraid to do it. Great if you can talk to your doctor first. Maybe if you're on multiple medications, he can tell you which medication might be best to reduce to begin with. But if you, for instance, can't get a hold of your doctor because they're so busy because of the viral infections that are going around, then take your health in your own hands. It's not really that hard to do. I wonder also if they could interview different doctors and find one who they could shift to who could walk them through this. There's an increasing number of agencies and places that offer ways to coach people on how to eat in the way that you're describing. Yeah, there's even like online apps that can help people. So there's certainly help out there. And a person just has to be diligent and interview doctors, look at different websites. Certainly the situation right now calls for self-education, you know, educate oneself about what they can do on their own to take their own health in their own hands. You'll know your health better than anybody. You'll know what your blood sugars are. You'll know what your blood pressure is. You'll know what it is this hour because you might not be able to call your doctor this hour. So I would recommend a person purchasing a blood pressure cuff and a blood glucose monitor. Those are the two indexes that can change quite dramatically when they change their diet and need adjusting as far as medication for sure. Well, good luck with what you are doing yourself. Have you had this virus yet? You mean have I personally? Yes. Have you had COVID-19 as far as you know? No. <laughs> Uh, now I'm actually locked down into in a beautiful facility, actually, so I can't really complain. I'm taken very good care of, but right now there's virtually no chance that I can be exposed. So I have not had it. I actually would like it. <laughs> that might sound funny to say, but uh, I would like a low dose. I would like to actually be exposed a little bit because I know eventually I'm going to have to be. And I would just as soon be exposed a little bit so that my immune system can start building up tolerance and building up immunity, building up antibodies and building up white cells to the virus so that when I do get a bigger exposure, you know, it's not going to affect me so much. The major superpower, I guess, of this virus is that it's new. It's worse because people have not yet developed an immunity to it. So the more a person has the virus, if they have a good, strong immune system, they'll build up antibodies against it that will be able to engulf it and kill it so then it becomes less virulent as time goes on in a particular person and over the weeks and months between people as people start developing an immunity to it but early on when that immunity is lacking certainly the virus becomes the most contagious and the most powerful because the immune system is not fighting it then it would have been so fun to talk with you additionally about how does the immune system fight things what causes high blood pressure We could have had a fun conversation about those things too. But right now, what's on people's minds is how do they do what they can to protect themselves? How do they do what they can to share information with a loved one that they care about that they'd like to have around in another year? These are real questions that people are facing. Yeah, absolutely. Well, for me, eating properly is is paramount in any disease and certainly the chronic diseases of which an impaired immune system is one, which then can manifest and is brought out by this virus. You want to eat properly, or in addition to eating properly, there are certain micronutrients a person can make sure that they have enough of, such as vitamin D, 
that's why staying indoors sometimes <laughs> might be counterproductive because certainly the best way to get vitamin D is to get sunlight. Um, so I, I would not be afraid of going outside. Also, as you go outside and you're breathing, your aerosol particles will dissipate into the atmosphere. They'll become less concentrated, whereas indoors, they'll become more concentrated. And so being indoors might not actually be the best. Being outdoors is fine as long as you don't congregate with people so that you know they're not directly getting a huge dose of a coronavirus. Let it dissipate off into the atmosphere. So keep your distance a little bit. For people in Colorado where this will broadcast, what a beautiful place to be outside and People are learning to keep their distance from each other. Exactly. I think being outdoors is great. I would encourage it. I'm Shelley Schlender. You've been listening to an interview with Dr. Ron Rosedale about inflammation, leptin, IL-6, and COVID-19. For more information, check out howonearthradio.org.